Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, who has uh, helped lead us in worship today. I pray that this time of the year is a time of worship. We've been reminded of that over and over again this morning already. I'm very grateful to be here worshiping with uh, my church family this morning, uh, this time of year as we celebrate Christmas. So uh, if you're a member of Edwards Road, thank you for being here and worshiping with us. If you're a guest, you're very welcome. Uh, We're honored to have you here today. I pray this is a time of worship for you as well as we look to uh, what it means for us that God has sent Christ into the world. Before we begin, um, I wanted to draw your attention to uh, this prayer guide that was in in with your bulletin today. Uh, This is a collection of prayer requests that I got from our uh, different missionaries that we partner with. You can read through those. Um, over, the, over the next week or so, please be in prayer for them. One of our goals as a missions team is to increase our missions awareness in 2024 so that we might increase our missions prayer, so that we might increase our missions participation. And uh, this is a good step, not only just to be aware of who it is that we partner with um, as, as a church, as you read through our different partners here, but also just to be in prayer for the work that God is doing around the world through them. And you read there at the top, Jesus' incarnation was part of God's redemptive mission to reconcile us to himself through the gospel. As we celebrate the birth of Christ this Christmas season, let's remember to pray for those God has sent out to join him in his mission all around the world. Um, this is the reason why Christ came, why he was born, so that he might live for us, die for us, rise again for us, and then send us out in his mission Uh, throughout the world. Just as God sent Christ into the world, God is now sending us by the Spirit out into the world to share the gospel. And so let's be in prayer for those who are serving around the world doing that. And uh, I'll just take a a point of privilege. Please be in prayer as well for those family members who are not able to celebrate with them this year because they're in different parts of the world, like the Gratzes and the Sweeneys, uh, who would love to be with Reese and Caitlin and Owen, but who know that they've been called to a special work there in London. So be, be in prayer for, uh, for them and for their families as well. I'm going to go ahead and read our text uh, for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, um, there is one located in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be on page 573. That's Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, please take one with you as a gift from us to you. Merry Christmas. Um, so uh, we'd love for you to have, that, have a copy of God's Word Page 573, I'm going to read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 9. There are also some sermon notes in your bulletin that you can use to follow along as well. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The prophet Isaiah writes, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he... God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it continues to speak to us so long after it was first given to your people. And God, today as we look at this prophecy that was given through Isaiah hundreds of years before the arrival of Christ, I pray that we would see with new eyes, God, what it means that you are a God who keeps his promises to us. You have promised good to us. You have done good to us through your son. And as we celebrate this Christmas season, I pray that Christ would be exalted and magnified in our lives and that you would receive glory as we praise you for what you have done for us that we could never do for ourselves. We pray that the same spirit that inspired these words and delivered them through your prophet would now speak to us and would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to hear from you, that we might believe and obey what you have revealed to us through your word. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of my uh, favorite traditions around Christmas is to watch Christmas movies. Uh, I don't know what it is about them. We have different movies that go with different holidays, but something about Christmas movies just get me in the spirit. Uh, There's a long tradition of Christmas movies. I didn't realize this. There's actually a Santa Claus film. It's a little over a minute long. You can watch it on YouTube from 1898. And uh, it's just Santa Claus delivering toys to two little kids after they go to bed. Um, I'm sure it was cutting edge graphics at the time. Um, you know, 125 years later, not, not quite as impressive. But over a century old, uh, this, this movie about Santa Claus, there, there, there's a four-minute um, Christmas Carol movie from 1901 that's also just really interesting. Uh, but my wife and I have watched a couple of new classic Christmas movies that I had never heard about before. Um, one of them is called Remember the Night. That's a really good one from the 40s. Another one called The Shop Around the Corner that we really enjoyed uh, that was also from the 40s. And it's so interesting watching these movies because you just, uh, you're struck by how different Christmas is now uh, than it was even 70, uh, 80 years ago. Uh, you know, the small family uh, celebrations at Christmas um, and Remember the Night, um, uh, Fred McMurray, the main character, gets, gets a pair of socks from his mom and a sweater from his aunt. His friend Willie gets a hat, and uh, that's Christmas. And then they string pop, popcorn around the Christmas tree, and everyone's just completely happy with that. You know, no one in these old movies is going into debt to pay for their kids' Christmas or anything like that. Um, so you just see the difference that has taken place in a little over 50 years in Christmas. And then you look throughout church history, back to the time of Christ, and and of course, for a long time, Christmas wasn't really celebrated as a holiday, and then it became a Christian holiday, and then some Christians tried to get rid of it as a holiday because they felt like it was pagan, and then became a national holiday, and it's gone through all these transitions, and you just think about all that has happened to Christmas uh, over 2,000 years. Um, but Christmas has a, a longer history than, than even that. This, this promise that God gave to send a Savior into the world is much older than 2,000 years. Uh, it is one that goes back uh, to the uh, origin of human history that was given to us in our earliest days that God would send a rescuer 
to us. And I think sometimes at Christmas we fail to remember that this is the fulfillment of a promise that God has given to us. Uh, We struggle with that because we're in 2023 and so we're looking backward at the incarnation. Uh, Christ has already come. He's already been born. And now uh, our struggle as as Christians, for those of us who put our faith in him, is to uh, try to figure out how do we live in light of what God has already done? Whereas for most of human history, for the people of God, their greatest question was, how do we live in anticipation of a reality that we have not yet experienced? How do we remain faithful when God has not yet done that thing that he has promised to do for us? And so the birth of Jesus uh, did not start in 0 AD or 4 AD or whenever exactly it was that he was born. Um, the, the, the promise of, of the birth of a Savior did not come then. It is much longer than that. And so today, the passage that we have just read is one in which God is, is going to his people and saying, I'm going to make good on this promise. In the meantime, you stay faithful to me. And God is going to uh, show them what he is going to do for them in fulfilling this promise of sending a Messiah. And so all throughout the scriptures, we see this anticipation, this looking forward. Is God going to fulfill his promise? And this promise, again, was not given at the time of Jesus' birth. It's a promise that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis 3. At the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God came to them and said, I have a plan to get you out of your sin. And this was not God's plan B. This was always God's plan, knowing that we would fall into sin, to then send a rescuer to save us from that sin. And so at the moment they sinned, God came to them and said, one of your offspring is going to come and he's going to crush the head of this serpent and crush the head of sin and deliver you. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see God's people looking to see if they can figure out who this rescuer will be. Is it going to be Abraham? Is it going to be Isaac? Maybe it's Jacob. Maybe it's King David. And just as soon as their hopes were up that perhaps this is the man who's going to deliver us and crush the head of the serpent, those hopes were crushed as they realized that each of these men were ensnared by the same sin that we needed to be delivered from. So they couldn't be the rescuer. And so for hundreds of years and thousands of years, God's people looked forward to who this rescuer might be. And God continued coming to his people and saying, he's coming. I'm going to make good on my promise. I'm going to send the rescuer. And so we have prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that point to who this redeemer is would be. But think about what it must have meant to the people that Isaiah originally spoke to, 700 years before Christ would come. What could it have possibly meant to them that God would one day send this rescuer to them? They could not have imagined how God would fulfill this promise. This is what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says, concerning this salvation, this gospel message, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And so these prophets tried to figure out what it was exactly they were prophesying about. And it was eventually revealed to them they were prophesying on our behalf. For our good, because we are the ones who would receive the benefit from the coming of Christ. They didn't understand, but what they prophesied by the Spirit of God speaking through them was perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. 
And so I've titled this sermon, Unto Us, and that's kind of been our theme this Advent season, thinking about what it means that Christ has been given unto us, that a son has been born unto us. When I say unto us, I don't just mean those of us in this room either. It's anyone from anywhere who has put their faith in Jesus to save them from that sin that ensnared us just as soon as we had entered the scene. And so this Christmas season is a lot of things for us, but it is a time for us to remember God's promises to us and to respond in worship to him for what he has done through Jesus and then live lives of faithfulness to him. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time to remind ourselves this is what God has done for us and this is who he is. So there are three things I want us to look at that the birth of this Messiah is to us. First, the birth of the Messiah is good news to us. Second, the birth of the Messiah means light, joy, and freedom to us. And then third, the birth of the Messiah is good news to us. Hopefully none of this is new information to you that uh, the birth of Jesus is good news or that it brings good things into our lives or that it is a gift to us. But I do hope that it will be cause for us to spend this Christmas season with a renewed sense of gratitude for what God has done for us through Jesus. So first, the birth of the Messiah is good news to us. And we see this in uh, Isaiah 9, verse 1. Now, Isaiah 9 naturally comes on the heels of Isaiah 8, where at the end of that chapter, Isaiah is uh, foretelling to the people that they are going to uh, be attacked by Assyria, they're going to be taken away into exile, and they're going to suffer for that as a result. Um, Chapter, um, chapter 9, verse 1, actually in the, the Jewish Hebrew canon, is chapter 8, verse 23. So they actually put that with the end of chapter 8 to tie all that together. And this is what Isaiah says at the end of chapter 8, in verses 21 and 22. He says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. So what Isaiah has given them here at the end of chapter 8 is bad news. Right? So they have been living in rebellion against God. They have been defying his law. They have been trying to live like the nations around them. And Isaiah is telling them, as a result of your actions, God is going to punish you and he's going to send you into exile. You're being punished because of your sin, but instead of bringing you back to God, he says there, you're actually going to speak against God. You're going to curse God because of the punishment that he's bringing to you. So your heart's are going to get even harder. The aim of God's discipline is always to restore, but that does not mean that our hearts always respond in a restorative way. Right? God knows our hearts, and he knows how we're going to respond before we respond, and he looks to the people of Israel and says, I'm going to punish you to show you how serious your sin is, but instead of that causing you to repent, it's actually going to cause your hearts to grow even harder. Right? We're the same way. We don't always respond to God's discipline, his loving discipline of us by repenting of our sin and running back to him. Sometimes that discipline can even push us further away. And so Isaiah gives them the bad news here. You are in sin and God is going to punish you for that. He gives them the bad news first and then he follows that with the good news. And really, this good news would not be good news if it weren't for the bad news. That's why for us as believers, when we share the gospel with other people, we don't just share, even though the gospel means good news, we don't just share the good news of the gospel. We have to share the bad news of the gospel first, right? If our gospel message is just God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, then the response very well could be, well, that's wonderful. 
I love me. I have a wonderful plan for my life. What do we do next? You know, there's, there's no next step. If, if we haven't met people with the bad news of the gospel, which is that we are dead in our sin and our trespasses and unable to reconcile ourselves to God, but because of God's grace, we have the good news that he has done all that is necessary through Jesus. And so before Isaiah gives him this good news of, of restoration and reconciliation that we get in chapter 9, he has just given them the bad news at the end of chapter 8, which is you're going to be sent far away from your home and your family and from the presence of God because of your sin, and that's going to make your hearts even harder. So we see here in chapter 9, given to these people would be really Good news. And we, we finish up chapter 8 with this bad news. And then in chapter 9, verse 1, we have one of my favorite words in the Bible, but. Isaiah has just ended with this bad news, and then he gives this word, but. Makes me think of Ephesians 2, where Paul says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were objects of God's wrath. We were on the path to hell. But God, because he is rich in mercy, saved us by his grace. In the same way here, Isaiah is saying, in the midst of your sin, while you are still sinning, while your hearts are still hard, God is going to come and restore you. So we see here that God is not acting because of how his people are behaving toward him. That's not what is causing his grace here. God is acting in spite of his people's actions. And this is what grace looks like. God will act in spite of his people to fulfill his promises to them. They're going to rebel even further. It's not as though Isaiah is saying God's going to punish you, he's going to discipline you, then you're going to repent, and then you're going to be on your best behavior for the rest of your life. Isaiah is saying that's going to drive you further into sin. Yet, while you are far from God, he is going to act with grace toward you. They'll go further into sin, and this is when God is going to relieve their suffering and restore his relationship with them. He says in, in verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Remember in 8.22, he has just said they're going to be enduring the gloom of anguish, but not anymore. He will restore them so that there will be no gloom for them in anguish. You're going to experience that. You're going to have to face discipline and experience the, the punishment for your sin, but it's not going to last forever. One of my favorite Christmas hymns is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It has a line in it that says, Jesus is Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. This Messiah that God had promised who he would send to his people will be a source of consolation and joy for them. He says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, Isaiah is doing something interesting here in how he phrases what he says here. You'll see, in the former time, he brought them into contempt, like he's just talked about at the end of chapter 2. Then he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. He's doing something called, uh, using something called the prophetic perfect, where Isaiah is speaking about future events in the past tense because they are so certain, because they have been guaranteed with God's promise that he's able to speak about them as though they have already happened. These things will come to pass. The land that experienced uh, desolation and this attack will be made glorious. He mentions Zebulun, and Naphtali, 
These were two areas of Israel that were in the north, and they were the first ones to experience this attack from Assyria. So they were going to feel the brunt of that first. But what he says here is that his glory is going to shine in these same areas that felt this attack. He said it's going to happen uh, by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And of course, what happened in Galilee? Well, that's where Jesus' ministry primarily took place. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 4, when Matthew goes to, is describing the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says all of what Jesus is doing right now in beginning his ministry in Galilee, which was in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, by doing that, he is fulfilling Isaiah chapter 9, and he quotes that there in Matthew chapter 4. So this land that had experienced darkness, that had experienced gloom and anguish, anguish was going to be made glorious. And again, it's not because of their behavior. This is nothing short of God's undeserved favor toward his people that they would receive this grace. So Christmas is a reminder of God's grace to us. Right? If this is a gift, it's not something that we have deserved. And God is acting in spite of his people to show his goodness to us. So just in the same way as Isaiah describes here, Jesus arrived to us while we were in our sin. We weren't in physical exile in some other country, but we were separated from God because of our sin. And in our weakness here, in our sin, the Bible says while we were still enemies of God, God sent Christ to us to save us, to forgive us, to reconcile. And God did all of this to show us his grace. And we know that God's greatest desire is for his glory. He wants to be worshipped and glorified by people all over the earth. And so all that God is doing in human history is for the primary purpose of uh, increasing his glory around the earth, increasing his worship. John Piper has said that missions exist because worship doesn't. This is why we go out and share the gospel because there are parts of the world where God is not being worshipped. So that's God's greatest desire is that he would receive glory and certainly he has received glory through Jesus who came and said that his purpose in being here was to glorify the Father. But the overflow of that, the overflowing blessing of God receiving glory all over the world through his son is that we have been the recipients of his grace. And as believers, that those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we are the recipients of great grace from our God. God has acted in spite of us to show us that grace. He's not only going to graciously act in spite of our sin, but Isaiah says he will also reverse the consequences of our sin. So God's going to go a step even further than just saying, I'm canceling out your debt. And he says, I'm actually going to bring blessing where you deserved cursing. So it would be enough for us if God just said, all right, you and I are neutral now, right? Blank slate. I don't have anything against you, but you and I aren't friends. But God goes a step further and says, I'm not only forgiving your sins so that you don't have a debt against me, I'm also going to bless you in spite of your sin so that you might enjoy my good blessings. This is what we see when God adopts us into his family. We move not just from enemies to you know, on a neutral ground before God, but God actually welcomes us into his family. And so we see that he reverses the consequences of our sin and gives us blessing where all we deserved was cursing. This is God going further than just canceling sin. That would be enough for us. That would be enough of an undeserved gift for God to just say, I'm just not going to punish you. But he goes even further and says, I'm going to bless you. Because God wants, us, wants more for us than just being freed from our sin. He wants us to enjoy life as he designed it to be. 
And so as we go through our passage, Isaiah begins to lay out what some of those blessings will look like. And the birth of the Messiah is going to mean three things for our people. It's going to mean light, it's going to mean joy, and it's going to mean freedom to us. So God is going to reverse the consequences of their sin. So where there was darkness and despair and oppression, God is going to give light and joy and freedom. So we see that God will bring light in place of darkness. In verse 2, he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So they were walking in darkness because, as he has just said at the end of chapter 8, they're living in a land that is dark. They've been sent into darkness. They are living in darkness. And he says the darkness of their heart is going to grow even darker. But God is going to shine his light into their darkness. Now, for the people of God receiving uh, God's word at this time, they would have understood God's light as representing his glory. So when God's glory shone, it was a light to his people. And God's desire was that his presence would be a guiding light to them, that they would continue to follow his glory. And so we see a very clear, visible representation of that uh, in God leading his people by the pillar of of fire by night, right? They saw God's uh, glory manifested as a pillar of fire, and that was their guiding light through the wilderness. This was God's purpose in choosing Israel, was that he might be their guiding light, and that they would then be a light to all the nations. This is why we see uh, throughout uh, the scripture, God saying, I will be your, you will be my people and I will be your God. This was God's purpose in choosing them was that he might dwell among them, that they might see his glory on a regular basis and follow his glory and his presence as their light. This was God's desire with Adam and Eve. This, we see this in the garden prior to sin that it says God walked with them. They were in the presence of God daily, but they sinned. They broke God's command, and then that barrier was put up between them, and now suddenly there was, there was a chasm between them and the presence of God that they could not cross. And so it continued for the people of God that their sin continued to create a barrier. So even when God dwelt among his people in the tabernacle and in the temple, they were separated from God, and they couldn't get too close or they would die because they were unholy, and God was holy. They were sinful. God was perfect. They were unrighteous. He was righteous. And so they couldn't get too close to God. This exile now meant further separation from them because in their minds, God, God dwelt in the temple. Right? This is where God was, and now they're going to be taken away from the temple. They're going to be taken away from their home. They're going to be separated from God. And so there's going to be great darkness where they are going. But God's plan was not to lead them in darkness. Like God's plan is not to leave us in darkness. God's plan was to shine a light on them again. And I'm sure for many of them, they thought, well, that's great. We'll be, we'll be brought back to where the temple is and we'll get to see God's glory again. But God had something even greater in mind than bringing them back and restoring the temple. God wasn't going to dwell behind a curtain any longer. God was going to dwell among them. And we know that God would come and take on flesh and through Jesus God's glory would shine again this is what John writes about in John chapter 1 I'll read a few verses from there he says in Jesus was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and the word word became flesh and dwelt among us and when we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth so here we see it light 
and glory. This is what Jesus gave to us as he represented God to us, as he manifested God's glory. We received light as we gazed on that glory. This is God shining his light through the incarnation, not just so that we might see it with our eyes, but so that that glory would shine on our hearts and remove the darkness that exists there because of our sin. This is why Peter says that God has called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. That's why the Bible uses phrases like us being dead in our sin and then being raised to life. This is not God trying to help us course correct, right? We're going from blind to having sight. We're going from dead to being alive in Christ. This is what it takes for God to save us. And so God would shine his light, and we have now seen God's light in the person of Christmas. Uh, person of Christmas. Got off a line there. The person of Jesus, right? God has called us out of darkness and into his light. The reason I had Christmas here, I was saying I, I love the fact that at Christmas we have so many lights. Um, it is just a beautiful reminder as we drive around. It's one of our favorite things to do with our kids, because it's free, is go look at Christmas lights. And it's just such a beautiful reminder of the light that God has shown on us in Christ. As we th see things all lit up this time of year, it's a good opportunity to remind ourselves the light, about the light that God has shown on us and into our hearts through Christ. So God will bring light in place of darkness. He will bring joy in place of despair. So these people, God is, or Isaiah is telling them, that they're going to be taken from their home, they're going to be taken away to a foreign land, taken away from everything they know and love, everything that is familiar, and they're going to be in bondage to a foreign pagan nation. Right? So what would the result of that be? Well, it's going to be despair for themselves, uh, for their children who are being taken with them, or despair over the loss of their home. Hopefully, in the midst of that, there would be some despair over their sin, even though God says, your hearts are going to grow even harder. There would be despair over how serious their sin against God was, the fact that uh, God had continually shown mercy to them over and over again, even given them this word through his prophet was an act of mercy that they might know what was on the horizon for them. But now God has said that his patience has run out. He's saying, if you want to live like the nations, then I'm going to send you out into the nations so that you can see what that kind of life is actually like. They were going to see they couldn't take advantage of God's grace forever and hope to continue avoiding the consequences that God would respond to their sin by punishing them. This was, again, not God's ultimate desire for them. And even though their sin had led them into captivity, they couldn't do anything to free themselves, so God was going to have to do something for them. And Isaiah here, again, speaking in the past tense, talks about what God will do for them. In verse 3, he says, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So God is going to prosper his people, again, even while they are in their sin. God is going to bring blessing to them. He says you're going to multiply the nation and he's going to increase their joy. And this is going to be the result of God's goodness toward them, of his blessing toward them. So he said they're going to have joy like they have at the harvest. They're going to have joy uh, like when they divide the spoil after coming back from war. So everyone from the farmer to the soldier is going to enjoy God's blessing and they are going to uh, respond with joy as their joy is multiplied. And we know um, from Scripture that this is what Christ has done in his incarnation, is bringing us everlasting joy. 
right? Not like the, the fading joy that comes from a good harvest, right? You still got to get back out and, and replant the next year, right? Or the joy that comes from winning a war, right? There will be more wars to come. But this is an everlasting joy. This is what the angel says to um, Mary, or to the shepherds, excuse me, in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. He says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. This is why at Christmas we sing joy to the world. When Isaac Watts wrote that hymn, he didn't int- originally intend for it to be a Christmas hymn. Uh, but because it begins with this announcement that the angels gave at the birth of Jesus, it fits right into our celebration of the incarnation. And it is joy to the world, right? This promise was given to Israel, but it was meant for all people. And that's why the angel says in Luke 2 that this is good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just the Jews, but for anyone from anywhere who puts their faith in Christ. And we see throughout Scripture, this was kind of a hard truth for the Jews to wrap their mind around, that God had, yes, he had specially chosen them, but it was for the purpose of sharing and spreading his gospel message to all nations so that all of God's people might be saved. So God is going to bring great joy to them in place of their despair through the arrival of the Messiah And then he's going to bring freedom in place of bondage. Isaiah is telling them the weight of that captivity won't remain forever. It says God is going to break and remove three things. The yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. He's telling them you are heading for hard times. None of this is going to be easy. You're going to wear a yoke and you're going to have their staff and their rod on you while you're in captivity. And their captors were going to think that they were in control of them, right? We, we have, uh, we have um, captured this people. They are now uh, ours. They, are, they, they belong to us. But what they were going to see is that they were on loan to them from God. God would redeem his people. And not only that, he was going to punish their captors for mistreating them as well. And Isaiah says he's going to do this just as he did on the day of Midian. And you'll remember that what happened at Midian was that Gideon's small army of 300 people defeated that entire army. But they didn't do it in their own strength. They did it by God working through them. And in the same way, God is going to act on behalf of his people to do something they could not do for themselves, to save them and to give them freedom where they were experiencing bondage. We see this freedom here as Isaiah talks about the the soldier's boot and the garments that had been bloodied by war. Those were now going to be used as fuel for the fire. They weren't going to need them anymore because the Messiah would bring freedom and peace. This is why he's called the Prince of Peace. In verse 6, that's why in verse 7 it says that his uh, peace will know no end. This is what God is bringing into the world uh, by the Messiah. God's going to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. This is what Isaiah promises uh, back in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, one day the people are going to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And it says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Don't you long for that day? We're not having to learn war anymore, especially with what is going on in our world Right now, Isaiah says that the peace, the, the, uh, the Messiah will bring that kind of peace. But it's going to be more than just the absence of military conflict. Yes, God is going to act on behalf of his people to bring them out of captivity and into freedom. But Christ has done even more than that for us. 
Right? He has given us freedom from sin and death and the grave and Satan, so much so that we can say with Paul that these things no longer have a sting for us as believers. It doesn't mean they don't hurt. It does mean that they can't affect our relationship with God anymore. Their hold on us has now been broken through Christ. Sin's oppression has been removed from us. See, whether we feel it or not, we have all been born under oppression, under the yoke of slavery to sin. And we cannot do anything to remove that yoke from ourselves, but Christ has done everything necessary to break the yoke and to remove the rod of our oppressor so that we are now free to live for him. Isaiah is telling us that true freedom is possible even when we feel like we can no longer be free of whatever sin pattern it is that we are in. The word of God tells us we can be free, that that yoke can be removed and we can put on Christ's yoke in its place. True freedom is possible. True peace is possible. And again, it's not just the absence of conflict. This is true peace with fellow man and with God where things have been put back as they should be. We were once enemies, but that hostility has been removed. And God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. So the birth of the Messiah is good news to us in the midst of our sin. It means light, joy, and freedom to us. And then finally, it is a gift to us. I don't know exactly where gift giving originated um, as part of the Christmas celebration. I think it's part reflection of the Magi giving gifts to uh, young boy Jesus uh, of course, you know, St. Nicholas gave gifts to children. Either way, this tradition points to the gift that God has given us through Christ. Again, is another reminder of what God has done for us in sending his Messiah. Verse 6 here begins with the word for. Now, if you look, verse 4 and 5 both begin with four as well, and they tell us why they're going to rejoice, right? The, the yoke and the staff and the rod are going to be removed, and then they're going to be able to burn up all of these instruments of war. That's why, why they will rejoice. Verse six, that four tells us how. How are all these things possible? How is God going to accomplish this? And if we were reading this for the first time, it's probably not what we would expect, that all of this uh, blessing and victory would be the result of the birth of a son right surely it's going to be through some great king or through some impressive military force that God is going to restore his people but what does he say here in verse 6 for to us a child is born to us a son is given now this wouldn't have been the first that they had heard about a child in Isaiah's prophecy if you go back to chapter 7 verse 14 this is where Isaiah says the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel so we see that son there. If you go into chapter 8, he prophesies about a son being born named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Not quite as easy to say as Emmanuel, but we see another baby there in chapter 8. But even with all of that leading up to it, surely after this promise, they would, have not, they would not have thought God is going to do all this through a child, right? But we see that this is exactly how God does this and that the birth of Jesus is a gift from God himself to us for to us a child is born to us a son is given 700 years later this promise would be fulfilled as the angel said for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord the messiah is god's gift to sinful undeserving humanity 
Right? John 3.16, a verse that we all know very well. God so loved the world that he gave. And God wanted to demonstrate his love for us in the clearest way possible. He gave himself. He gave his son. The son that was born humbly and born in obscurity. As we just sang about in this song about that manger throne into which he was born. But he would not remain that way. Isaiah says this of the, of the Messiah, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. God is going to remove oppression from the shoulders of his people and he's going to put the rule of his kingdom onto the shoulders of his son. And instead of living under imperfect, often openly immoral kings, they were going to be living under the son of God who would rule with perfect justice and perfect righteousness forever. The people would finally experience life as God intended. And Isaiah says that he will be given these four names. You could preach a sermon on each of these names. I just want to give a quick overview. He says he will be wonderful counselor. That word wonderful is more than how we use it as like really good. Uh, it should point us to uh, the miraculous things that Jesus did. These are things that would inspire wonder as people looked on him and his acts he would act as God does. And he will be our counselor. He will act with perfect wisdom. And so we see wrapped up in the Messiah, God's perfect power and his wisdom on display. Isaiah said he would be mighty God. We would need him to be mighty to overcome our sin and the bondage that we had to Satan. God's people certainly at this time would have needed a mighty savior to rescue them out of their plight. And Isaiah said he's not just going to be like God. He will be God. This is the only way he could fulfill this role of the Messiah. So Isaiah is not talking about a human king here. He would never call any king God. He's talking about the divine Messiah. He'll be called everlasting father. Now this one's interesting because we think, well, Jesus isn't the father. He's the son. But he's not calling him father like we talk about God the father. That was a common title used to describe kings. Now, they would be the father of their kingdom. And it describes how he will rule over his kingdom. He will work for our good. And he will rule with care. And he will be everlasting. His rule will continue forevermore. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. His rule will never end. And he will be the prince of peace. In other words, he's going to put things back to how they were. He is going to bring final shalom here on the earth. And he will be prince over all creation as the son of the creator. He's going to bring peace on earth and peace with our creator. Again, these titles could not apply all to a man. They could only apply to God. And so we see that the Messiah is not only a gift from God to us, he is the gift of God himself to us. This, again, was God's great demonstration of love. He gave himself to be born to us, to live for us, to die for us, and then to rise again for us so that we might be with our creator. One of the commentators I was reading said that this verse, chapter, or verse six, actually points to both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. It says, for to us a child is born. Right? So Jesus was born just as every one of us has been born. Dr. Johnson talked about this a few weeks ago, that it's, it's the, uh, the, the conception that was divine. It was uh, an immaculate. Uh, he was, his birth was just a natural birth like we have all experienced. So he would be born as a human. But then it says to us a son 
is given. This would be the Son of God that was given to us by God. Again, John chapter 1, verse 14, and the Word that was God and that was with God, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he is from God and he is of God. He is the greatest gift we could receive, and it is all God's grace from beginning to end. Everything Isaiah promises about the Messiah in verse 7 here at the end of our passage is true of Jesus, where he says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Nothing will stop the growth of Jesus' kingdom. This is why he's able to say, I'm going to build my church and nothing, not even the gates of hell, can prevail against it. It is going to continue to grow and to expand. And as the son of God in the line of David, he is going to establish God's kingdom. He is going to rule it with perfect justice and righteousness. That kingdom has now broken into the world in the incarnation of Jesus and it will continue to grow as people continue to be called out of darkness and out of death into light and life. Every king and every kingdom is going to pass away, but Jesus and his kingdom will endure forever and nothing will be able to stand against it. And God himself has guaranteed this. Isaiah says this, the very last line, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not our, our idea. It's not something we could pull off by ourselves. It originated with God, and he has guaranteed that it will come to pass. The zeal of God will do this. So we see that our salvation, our restoration, this, this grace that God has shown toward us is all of God. It is all his idea, and he has carried it all out through Jesus. So this time that we celebrate the birth of Christ is a time in which we should be thanking God for making our reconciliation possible through Jesus. It is not just a good story for us to look back on. It is the means by which God has reconciled us through himself and overcome our sin problem. It is the fulfillment of that promise that he gave all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, to send a rescuer who would crush the head of our enemy and bring us back to himself. What Isaiah has given us here in chapter 9 is essentially a divine birth announcement. And birth announcements have gotten a little out of control lately. I don't know if you noticed. It's kind of a competition to see who can have the biggest one and the best one. And um, I don't know what they used to do back in the day, just tell people as they saw them or what. Uh, there's a house up the road that has a big six-foot stork um, with like the baby's name on it and then it's got a little little sign over here for big sister I guess so she doesn't get jealous and poke him in the soft spot and uh, you know we love to make a big deal about the fact that we uh, have um, welcomed new babies into the world but I don't know any parent no matter how much they love their kid who has ever said that their child was a gift to the whole world they may have felt that way but I don't know anyone who has ever said that this is what Isaiah is telling us, is that the birth of the Messiah is God's gift to us, and it is a gift to the whole world. This is more than a, a memo that there would be a new citizen in Jerusalem. This is an announcement of a gift to all people everywhere, that the Messiah has come, that he's come here to live among us. But it's a gift that demands a response. Our only appropriate response is faith. The only way we can respond to what God has done for us through Christ is to respond with faith to him. The good news for us is that that's the only response 
that we need. We come to God empty-handed. Again, this is the bad news. We come to God with a debt because of our sin. But through Christ, God has done everything necessary to overcome that debt and to pay it for us. And he has made our salvation not only possible, he has accomplished it through Christ for those who believe. These promises here that we've looked at, the fact that this is good news, that it means light and joy and freedom to us, and that that it's our gift. Those, those are promises that are only to those who believe. And so whether your response this morning is, is one of, of increased gratitude and worship to God for what he's done, or if this is the time in which you would say for the first time, I'm gonna put my faith in this savior that God promised and then made good on. God is calling to you to respond. It's not an invitation, it's a, it's a command from God to respond to what he has done for us through Christ. We know his promises are sure because he is faithful to his word and he has delivered on those promises sent a, a Messiah in the birth of Jesus. So I pray that for all of us, this Christmas season is one of great worship as we thank God for what he has done for us by sending his son. Let's pray. Father, we desire above all things to exalt your son the son that left the glories of heaven, that didn't consider equality with you a thing to be grasped, but who humbled himself and took on flesh to look like one of us, to be one of us, so that he could live in our place and then die in our place and then rise again so that we might have hope of eternal life. God, we give you all the glory for that. We could never have come up with a plan like what you carried out through Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark. You've not left us dead in our sin, but you have made a way for us to be right with you uh, through faith in your son. And I pray that every person in this room would put their faith in Jesus, whether they're doing that for the, the hundredth time or whether they're doing that today for the first time, that they're saying, yes, God, my, my faith is in your son and what he has done for me, and I'm going to live my life accordingly. I pray that all of us would respond with great faith and worship today and that that would carry us through this season. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Edwards Road Baptist Church. We hope you are meaningfully involved in a local church, but if you aren't, we would love to have you join us on Sunday mornings as we worship God and hear from His Word together. You can find more information about our church by visiting our website at edwardsroad.org.